So we are in a, the third week of our series here, Not Alone. And what we've been learning through this series is the importance of the spiritual discipline of friendship. I call it a discipline because it's just as important as praying, as giving, as reading the Word, as fasting, as seeking God. Uh, the, the discipline of making friends, of having spiritual friendship, is a requirement of God. The big idea of the series that hasn't changed at all is that we are created in God's image. We know that. That when God formed man in the garden, he said, let us make man in our image. Now, when he said man, that was a generic term for both women and men, God's creation. And since we're all created in his image, we are relational beings because God is a relational being. And because he's relational, uh, we're relational. So we're built, we're created with a deep longing, a deep need for community, for a place where you belong. And just as you've walked into maybe a new classroom or a new workplace, or maybe even this church this morning where you didn't know too many people, and you wondered, how am I going to do here, and who am I going to speak to? What you were feeling there was the longing and the, the innate uh, gift that God is giving you to be part of community. And what we long to be here is a community of faith, a family of God who cooperates with him, right? And making disciples and spreading the good news of the gospel. But it's without any question that whenever you go into friendship, wherever you are in community, there's going to be conflict, right? The story is told of two porcupines. Now, the porcupine is a very unique animal, right? Uh, some of you know them well. I have a picture of one here. Um, they're, they're made with a defense mechanism, which are these needles that come out of its skin. Now, those needles provide defense. They provide uh, safety, um, but they can also be counterproductive. And the story is told of two porcupines during a winter where it was a, a cold night, a particularly cold night, and the two porcupines understood that they needed to get close to one another for warmth, to survive. Well, because they got close to one another, what the two porcupines would do is they began to poke one another, prick one another with those needles, right? So what did they do? They separated. And as they separated, what happened? They became cold. They became shivering. They understood and they knew that they needed to be close for warmth, for safety, for survival. So what did they do? They came together again. And again, they started poking one another, needling one another. And so the cycle repeated. And people can be like porcupines, right? We know we need each other. We know we need each other. But just as much as we need each other, we needle each other. And we separate and we come back. And some of us get into this repetitive cycle of the people that are closest to us are those that we have the most conflict with. We need each other, but boy do we annoy one another. So conflict. Conflict is this disruptive dance of disharmony. And it's interesting that the people closest to you are those that you usually have the most conflict with. And they say in marriage that at the beginning of a marriage, opposites attract, 
right? And when you're early in a relationship or early in a marriage, wow, our opposites attract. We're so different, but that's what makes us so happy. And it goes from opposites attract to when you've been married three, four, five, six, sixteen years to opposites attack. It's no longer opposites attract. Now it's opposites attract. Oh, you're so different. Why can't we be on the same page? And even friendships get into that cycle of off again, on again, off again, off again, on again. And all of us as believers of Christ, we all agree and we say, wow, we cannot wait to the day where we live in heaven, where we're all together in God's glory. But living life together here on earth, well, that's a different story. It's inevitable. Conflict will be part of every level of relationships that you have. And the truth is, where there's people, there's going to be conflict. Conflict, um, some authors that study people communication and people relationships, uh, they defined um, conflict like this. This is from a book called Interpersonal Communication. It's a classic book. It's been done like, I think, they're on their 11th edition. It keeps getting updated. Um, interpersonal communication by authors Beebe, uh, relating to one another, they, they define conflict like this, as an expressed struggle that occurs when two people, or more, cannot agree on a way to meet their needs. That's what a conflict is. When two people cannot agree, it's an expressed struggle, there's an expression, there's an outward expression, it could be verbal, it could be nonverbal, uh, it could be silent, it could be emotional, uh, it, it could be all different types of level. It could be mental. But there's an express struggle when two people cannot just get together and find a way to meet each other's needs. And we see that in conflict. People who study conflict have narrowed down the causes of them to three main causes. If you take most conflicts that you've experienced, and if you're here with a spouse, you could probably think back to your, your, your last one, or if you're a parent and, and, and child, or a teacher, and a student, or your boss and yourself. I mean, whatever your dynamic, this is, just applies to all relationships. Uh, in all relationships, the causes of, of conflict usually narrow down to three main causes. Here they are. The first one is misunderstandings. This is just a, a result of poor communication. This is the most common cause of conflict. And it's the most easily uh, solved conflict, too. This happens when one person doesn't understand what the other person means or is trying to say. It's usually based when someone doesn't have the complete information, they lack complete information, or they base something off of assumptions. Wow, our assumptions are great at causing conflict. And this usually happens in a relationship where you walk in and somebody says, hey, how was your day? And they say, hmm, it was all right. And they say, wow, what's your problem? What do you mean, what's my problem? What's your problem? Why are you always asking me what my problem is? And you see the poor communication there, right? The question of saying, what's your problem? Someone assumes you're attacking me, you're judging me, you're getting on me, you're complaining about me, and because of this whole big misunderstanding, what happens? You have this conflict. Have you ever had conflicts that were just based off of misunderstandings, poor communication? The second cause of conflict is previous resentment. And this is where you've been doing what I've been saying throughout this whole series, right? You've been cursing, you've been nursing, and you've been rehearsing. And 
the problem that you're arguing about or that the conflict is presenting is not even what's on your mind. It's all this stuff that you've held onto recently. You haven't let it out. You've been letting it build, right? And then the proverbial camel here that breaks, or the needle that breaks the camel's back. I get the sayings mixed up. But the thing that breaks the camel's back, right, is it's so minuscule, so small. The conflict isn't even about that. But it's all this anger and bitterness and resentment that you've been building for a while. So a person comes in and they say, hey, what are we going to watch today? What show do we want to watch? What Netflix movie do we want to watch? Well, let's watch this movie. And somebody says, well, why do you always want to watch those kind of movies? Well, what's wrong with this movie? Well, you know, you always get your way. And then you see it, it, this whole big conflict comes up because it's not even about the movie that was chosen. It's about all this anger and emotion that somebody had put inside of them that they never dealt with. So it was previous resentment led to that conflict. And the third cause is different goals, different desires, different needs. This is when people, we can't get past our own preferences to come to a solution. To, to, to narrow it, this is selfishness. It's when we don't care about the other person's desires. We just hold on to what we want to do, and we cause conflict, right? And if you've ever had a, a situation where you wanted to spend some time together, maybe it was two friends, hey, what are we going to do this weekend? One friend wanted to go for a walk. The other friend, you know, wanted to go to a get-together. You have two competing needs there. Who's going to win? And if you intertwine some of these if there's poor communications between that friendship if there's some built-up resentment between that friendship guess what they are going to experience conflict so all conflicts usually narrow down to misunderstandings to previous resentment to different goals desires needs that we have when they're not met we react right and with anything where there's life where there's dynamic movement it's kind of like a machine I have a picture of these gears here, right? Wherever there's movement, people will experience friction. Machines will experience friction. And the only way to stop the friction on this machine, the only way to eliminate the friction is to turn the machine off. And the only way you will ever truly eliminate conflict from your relationships will be to kill your relationship. But does anybody want that? That's not the goal of relationships. So we must learn, as, as people of God, we have to learn how do we reduce the friction? How do we reduce the grinding of the gears that we experience in our relationships at all levels? It's when you reduce friction. Anyone who operates machines or understands cars knows this. It's when you reduce friction that you add longevity, you add life, and you add efficiency to that machine, right? Same thing in relationships. When we learn to reduce friction, we add longevity, we add life, and we add efficiency to our friendships. So how do we reduce conflict? How do we reduce it? The first step is to be honest and to admit that you have one. To say, hey, you know what? I'm not okay. Spouses, how many times have you asked your husband, what's wrong? What's the classic answer? Nothing. Hey, admit that you have a conflict. Now, once you admit you have a conflict, understand that you now have a choice. You control how the conflict goes. If you choose to resolve conflict, which we're going to be talking about today, if you choose to resolve it, if that's your choice, 
Remember that growth comes from conflict. Growth comes from resistance. It's like training your body. It's like lifting weights. When you encounter resistance and you resolve to work through it, what does that do to your body? What does that do to your muscles? It strengthens them. It builds them, right? Oh, it hurts. It's painful. It's a tough job. It never feels good in the moment, but it produces growth. You have a choice. Will you resolve it? Will you let growth come from conflict? The second thing you could do is deny it and walk away. And just like building your body, if you choose to deny that there's conflict, never choose to deal with it, never confront it, it's like the weight that stays on the ground, you never pick it up, you never confront it, you never push through the pain, you never try to lift it, you never engage with it, what happens to your muscles? Your muscles will weaken, your muscles will shrink, and your muscles will eventually die. And that's what happens to your friendships when you choose not to resolve conflicts. Your friendships shrink, your friendships reduce, and your friendships will eventually die. So we are called to be people who handle and resolve conflict. How do we do it? What are the steps to doing it? Peter, in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 3, that's where I want us to open today. 1 Peter chapter 3 in your Bibles He writes to the church, and he's encouraging the church for the moment when the church is going to experience persecution. He's preparing them to say, hey, you're going to to get in some conflicts, man. Just be ready for it. Here are the steps to reduce conflict, to reduce friction, and to get past these moments. Here's how you do it. Here's my encouragement to you, church. Here's how you reduce friction. Here's how you handle conflict. And we find these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. So he's telling them, finally, because he's prepared them by saying, you know, as believers of God, you're going to encounter all this junk. You're going to have conflict because where there's people, there's conflict. He says, this is how you deal with it. So let's read through from verse 8 to verse 11, and then I want to share with you five principles for reducing conflict, for diffusing conflict in any relationship. Peter says this. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and He will grant you His blessing. Whoa. For the Scriptures say, and here Peter refers to Old Testament Scripture, he says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The Word of God. Peter giving us the steps of how to de-escalate, defuse, and handle conflict. So five keys, five essentials, five principles for handling conflict. And these work in the boardroom. These work in the meeting room at work. These work in the lunchroom at school. These work in the classroom at school. These work in the bedroom in a marriage. These work in the church room. These work 
in anywhere, maybe except the bathroom, right? Can't help you there. But these work in any room and any space. So it doesn't matter what relationship you're thinking of right now, like, man, I have conflict with this person. I want you to think. I want you to picture the person's face. Don't get angry. Don't start cussing. But who is the person right now that you know you have the most conflict with? You just can't. You're grinding gears. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's me. I don't know. It's okay. I forgive you. But who is the person who you're feeling like I have the most conflict with? I want you to have them in your mind right now, okay? And as we go through these five principles, I want you to ask yourself, how could I apply this with them? What does this look like with them specifically? Specifically, we don't want to just hear a word today. We want to take this word, put it in our heart, let God use it, and let it bring change in our life. Amen? So five principles in how to diffuse conflict. The first one is this. Express empathy. Express empathy. Walk in another person's shoes. Paul says there, right? Uh, I'll leave this up here for a minute. But Paul says in verse 8, he says, sympathize with each other. To sympathize with others means you try to understand them. You validate their feelings. You don't always, and hear me well, you don't always validate their ideas. You can, val- you, you can say, I don't agree with your ideas. I think what you're saying is, is maybe not making sense to me. I may disagree with that. But I validate your feelings. I'm sympathizing with you. I'm empathizing with you, right? You don't always validate ideas or, or, or understand ideas. We won't. But you can understand and validate a person's feelings. When you do that, you meet two needs in them. One, we all have a need to be understood, right? Everybody just wants to be understood. And everybody wants to be affirmed. And when you express empathy, when you sympathize with somebody, and again, I want you to think of that person you just can't get with. When you do this, when you express empathy, you meet two deep needs, the need to be understood and the need to be affirmed. When we seek to understand where people are coming from, it helps us so much. It de-escalates conflict. When you intentionally try to understand where they're coming from. To understand where a person comes from means you consider their background, you consider their temperament, you consider the circumstances, their previous experiences, because all of that together shapes a person. All of that together shapes a person. And part of our roles, Peter is saying here, sympathize with people. Try to understand where they're coming from. Right now, in this country, where there's so much division, even in the church, if we could just express some empathy for one another, and instead of instantly lashing out and responding in anger, try to understand, where are you coming from, bro? Where are you coming from, sis? What has shaped this thinking? What has shaped this idea? What experiences have you lived that makes you tick this way? And I really want to understand that. You could see how that would de-escalate a conflict. But we don't do that. We instantly want to come back Win, dominate arguments. The 12th century priest, Francis of Assisi, the Franciscan monk, he had this prayer, and this prayer went like this. He said, Lord, make me an instrument of Thy peace. Use me to accomplish Your peace. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to 
understand. I love that prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. Help me, God. You need the strength of God to be a person. Help me to understand first and not just seek to be understood. That is a divine request we need to ask. And Scripture affirms this. Scripture affirms this principle of seeking first to understand instead of being understood. When Paul writes to the Romans, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. We don't need to understand fully, completely why they're weeping, but if they're weeping, empathize and weep with them. Listen, uh, we will never know the full reasons why conflicts come, but seeking first to understand the other person is the first step to diffusing a conflict. It's the first step. Saying, God, help me understand this person. Let me express empathy. The second thing that Paul, or that Peter, sorry, writes here in 1 Peter, he tells us to gain perspective. The second thing is to gain perspective. To realize that most of the time, the people that you're arguing with are people that are on the same team. He says, love each other as brothers and sisters. As family. When you argue with your spouse, hey, that's the same marriage. When you argue with your extended family, hey, you're the same family at work. When you guys argue with your coworkers, your bosses, hey, this is the same unit. With your classmates, hey, we're the same school community. Within the church, hey, we're the same church family. Peter is saying, get some perspective and understand that the person that you often go toe-to-toe with is somebody that's on the same team as you. You're the same side. So we, we can't go into conflicts trying to compete. A fatal mistake we make when we handle conflicts, whether with our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, church brothers and sisters, is we try to compete with them. We make it a win situation. I must win this argument. I must win this conflict. I must prove my point. Listen and hear me well. When we minimize conflict, what you do is you minimize competition. You say, look, I'm not competing against you. We're on the same team, but I want to maximize cooperation. How can we work together in this? Peter goes on to mention three kind of uh, character traits of a good teammate. He says, you know, love one another. The first character trait there is love the lo- love is, is uh, something that says, look, I'm going to look out for your best interests. We're going to stop attacking each other, and we're going to attack this problem. The second thing P- Peter mentions there is being tenderhearted. Being tenderhearted means, look, we're not just going to talk about love. We're going to act it out. We're going to apply it. We're actually going to show love for one another. And then he says humility. He says, have humility. What does humility do? Humility checks your pride at the door. Humility admits faults. Humility admits your weaknesses, your failures. Humility allows you to say the nine words that will save your marriage. The nine words that will save your friendships. The nine words that will save your relationships at work or with your friends at school. You know what those nine words are? I'm sorry... I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Only humility allows you to say that. 
And what we need is perspective to say this person that I'm battling with, we're on the same team. Love one another as brothers and sisters. Paul had a very interesting piece of encouragement in the letter to the Philippians. I, I, I have it here. And he addresses these two sisters, Eudoia and Cynthia, right? You guys remember that? It's from uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. This is from the ESV version. Paul writes to the church that he had planted, and he appeals to these two ladies. He says, I entreat you. In other words, I beg you. Look, I'm, I'm strongly encouraging you, uh, Eudoia and Cynthia, to agree in the Lord. We don't know the nature of the argument. We don't know what they were arguing about. We don't know what the fight or the quarrel was about. There's some scholars who have some ideas. But, but what, what Paul is encouraging them to say hey, is, you don't have to agree on everything, but you're on the same team. You're on the Lord's team. So what? Agree in the Lord. And sometimes we've got to come to a place where we say, look, what we're fighting about, let's get some perspective. We're on the same unit here. We're on the same team here. Let's agree in that. Let's agree that we're in this marriage together. Let's agree that we're in this classroom together. Let's agree that we're on this team together. Let's agree that we're in this workplace together. We might not have all the other things in agreement, but let's agree on that. Let's start there. Gain perspective. The famous American pastor Harry Emerson Fosdick says, in conflict, there are always many opinions. This is a pastor who pastored a church for decades, dealt with probably thousands of conflicts. And this is his wisdom about perspective and conflict. He says, there's many opinions. And he says, I'm not always sure whether they are right or wrong. But there is one thing I am sure of. In decades of ministry, he says, this is the one thing I'm sure of. Courtesy and kindness, and tolerance, and humility, and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistaken, but love never is. And some of us, we lose perspective because what matters most is our opinions, our positions, our stance, our arguments. And in Conflicts, hey, who, who, who knows who's right and who's wrong and who's more valid and who's not valid and who's more on point or who's off point. All that doesn't matter. One thing that, that's debatable, one thing that is not debatable is you have the opportunity to display the love, kindness, humility, and tenderheartedness of Christ in every conflict that you have. And that is always right. And this is a good word. The third thing that Peter teaches us, we got to express empathy, we got to get perspective. The third thing he says is to avoid vengeance. Avoid it. You don't repay evil with evil, but you repay evil with good and blessing. Peter says, instead of paying evil with evil, he says, pay them back with a blessing. Here is your choice. Are you going to retaliate? Are you going to seek revenge in your conflicts? Or are you going to go a new way, a different path? The way I see it is that whenever you are in a place where you're in a conflict, I want you to see it as a person standing uh, near a little fire in the woods. It's a little fire. And you as a person, you have two buckets. Here are the two buckets. 
You choose what you get to pour on that little fire. One bucket is gasoline. You know if you go there, you release that. You know what's going to happen to this small fire. The other bucket is water. You know if you release that, what that's going to do to this little fire. This is a little fire. Most conflicts that begin when, in the beginning, they're little fires. It's people. It's us who have the choice. We have these two buckets. And this bucket is symbolic of your words. Of your words. This is your mouth. What's going to come out of your mouth in that moment when this is a small little fire? Some of us will have buckets that are full of hostility, anger, abuse. Other people will have buckets full of acceptance, value, understanding, love, kindness. What are you going to pour out? Are you going to seek vengeance? If you seek vengeance, it's like throwing a bucket of gasoline on this little fire. The world says, we, we know what the world says. The world says, burn that mother down. Let it burn. And while it's burning, let them burn with it. Doesn't that what the world says? Hey, I don't get mad, I get what? I get even. We're taught that. You know, I, I wish that when I was younger... I had read First Peter. <laughs> I wish that when I was a teenager that somebody would have sat me down and said, look, here's First Peter. <laughs> because I know I've used my words as gasoline. I was an expert. I was 97 octane. I was highly combustible. And man, did I pay for it in my relationships, my friendships, and the way I interacted with people. But you have a choice. Peter explains to us that you have a choice. You could either say, I'm going to burn this thing down, or I'm not going to repay evil with evil, but I'm going to repay evil with good and with blessing. And I want you to see very carefully here what Peter says about that. It's in verse 9. It says here, it says, Instead, pay them back with a blessing. Now look at the sentence after that. Right? Pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. Some of us want to spiritualize and, 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 and think and convince ourselves that God has called you to burn that thing down. God has not called you to burn that thing down. God never calls you to take vengeance for people who have wronged you. God has called you to pay back evil with good and with blessing. And when we do that, what happens? He will grant you what? His blessing. See, we got to shift the thinking of, look, let's listen, brother. I'm, I'm going to pay you back with a blessing, not because I like you, but because God has called me to do it. Not because I want to convince you to like me, but when I give you my blessing, God's going to give me His. We shift the thinking. What are you going to do? Are you going to seek vengeance? And let me just clarify what this word blessing means. It doesn't mean you take that person. It doesn't mean free lunch. You take them out to lunch. You roll out the red carpet for them at the family parties. It doesn't mean all that. It means you give them slack. It means you overlook minor faults. 
It means you understand that some people just have bad days and you give more kindness than justice demands. It means that you become a person who always seeks reconciliation rather than a resolution. And we offer forgiveness. That's what your blessing means. It means, hey, you know what? I'm going to choose to forgive you. It doesn't mean I forget it. Doesn't mean we're okay right now. It doesn't mean everything's hunky dory and we're all lovey dovey again. No, there's a process towards healing. That's reconciliation. But forgiveness says you're off the hook. Because you know what unforgiveness is? I love this quote. You know what unforgiveness is? Unforgiveness is you drinking poison and expecting them to die. Picture that. When you're in unforgiveness, your heart is so toxic but you're drinking it in thinking it's going to kill them. No, brother, no, sister, hear me well. It's killing you. It's killing you. And that is not what God has called you to do. Some verses that prove this. Romans 12, 19, Paul writing to the Romans, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. How clear could it be? Never take revenge. Leave that to the judge who is right. To the God who is righteous. Because we're not righteous. Your vengeance will never be righteous. Don't try to convince yourself of it. God is the righteous judge. His vengeance will be righteous. So leave it to Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 Paul encouraging this church that's experiencing persecution. Experiencing wrongful persecution encourages the church members in Thessalonica to say in his justice in God's justice he will pay back those who persecute you who will pay back those who persecute you God will pay them back when we become people who seek vengeance we don't de-escalate we don't resolve conflict we pour gasoline on the fire the fourth thing Peter teaches us is to mind your words. It kind of goes with vengeance. But to mind your words, to control your tongue. Mind your words. Control your tongue. He says in in, in verse 10, he quotes Old Testament Scripture, and he says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil your lips from telling lies. Do you know that there's a difference between age and maturity? Age and maturity are not the same trajectory. There are many people who I know who are climbing up in age, but are declining in maturity, right? And I know many people who are younger in age and have maturity beyond their years. Age and maturity don't always correlate. You can Never grow up, but you could grow older. And the sign of a true, mature person is someone who's learned to master their mouth, to tame their tongue, and to use it to diffuse conflict. You see, the tongue, when we fail to control our tongue, your words become daggers. Every word becomes pointed. And every word becomes loaded. And every word becomes an attack. It's like it says in Proverbs 18.12. It says, The words 
of the reckless. Here, reckless meaning someone who doesn't mind their mouth. Someone who doesn't control their tongue. Someone who's reckless with their words. Their words, what? Pierce like swords. But the tongue of the wise brings what? Brings healing. So my question to you is, what is in your bucket? Is your tongue under control? What do you pour out when you're in conflict? Do you pour out gossip? Do you pour out rumors? Do you just get so giddy and excited in that juicy little bit of news that you need to share with coworkers, with classmates, with friends? Are you someone who specializes in making a mountain out of the molehill because you just love to stir the pot? What's in your bucket? Peter says, look, you want to enjoy life. You want to have happy days. Keep the tongue. Keep the tongue. Proverbs 18.21, right? It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and you'll eat the fruit thereof. But I love how the message translation says it. Eugene Peterson, gosh, I love him and what he did with the message translation. Just simplifying the language, just bringing it home. Proverbs 18.21 in the message translation says, look, words kill, but words bring life. They're either poison or they're fruit. You choose. What's in your bucket? Poison or fruit? These are good, right? I mean, these are just super practical. The last one here, number five. Peter tells us that we need to pursue peace. We need to pursue peace. And we need to work to make it happen. It won't just happen on its own. It's not osmosis. You're not going to see peace come on its own. You must work to make peace happen. And as a person of peace, you need to pursue it. You need to get after it. Peter says there in verse 11, he says, Search for peace. Turn away from evil. Turn away evil and do good. Search for peace and work, 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 work to maintain it. I, as I was preparing for this message, I came across, I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently, according to the National Volunteer Fire Council, which is a, a council made up of fire departments throughout the whole United States, and they have an international fire council, which is made up of fire departments from all over the, the world, but I didn't know that apparently it's a thing for firefighters to start fires. Apparently, every year, there are over a hundred arrests made here, just in this country, of firefighters who intentionally start fires. And the reason for, for them doing it is they're bored. They want work. <laughs> Some need, you know, uh, have a desire to be a hero or whatnot, so they'll set a fire so they could go and be the hero and receive accolades and affirmation. I didn't know it was a thing for the very people who are supposed to protect us from fires to be the ones starting them. This blew my mind. And listen, we all know it's a simple idea that it's not the job of firefighters to start them. It's the job of firefighters to put them out. It's just, just as simple as a concept that as a child of God, as a person who loves the Lord, it's not your job to start conflicts. It's your job 
to put them out by making peace. Peter says, pursue peace. It's an active verb there. It's not a passive verb. That means you have to work at it. You have to be passionate about wanting peace. And, and here are, are, are three things that peacemaking, because the Bible is very clear on the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Some of us are happy with keeping peace in our families, in our marriage, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our environments, right? We're happy with keeping peace. Hey, I'll walk on eggshells. Just, just, just don't snap. Don't yell. Nobody get angry. And I'm good. That's not making peace. You're not pursuing anything there. The Bible encourages us to make peace, to make things right. What does that mean? Here are three things that peacemaking is not. Peacemaking means that there's no apathy. You cannot make peace and have the attitude, well, I don't care. As long as nobody's yelling, as long as nobody's angry, I'm good. That's not making peace. If there's conflict and you're showing an apathetic response, in other words, you don't care as long as everyone's quiet and everything's chill, you're not making peace, you're keeping peace. That peace will one day be gone and you'll be forced to confront and make peace. Peacemaking also means that you can't deny. There's no denying. You cannot lie to yourself and say, oh, there's no conflict here, everything's okay, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm fine. Everything's all right. I'm not upset. I'm not angry. No. Peacemaking, there's no denying in peacemaking. Because peacemaking is the hard work of saying, look, there's something wrong here. And we need to fix it. There's no denying in peacemaking. And the third thing, and this is the most trickiest here, the most sensitive, in peacemaking, there's no enabling. There's no codependency and allowing people to display toxic, harmful, unhealthy patterns of confronting conflict. By how? How do people who are unhealthy in conflict and how do people who have toxic patterns of handling conflict, how are they enabled? People enable them by pointing the blame to someone else. That whenever you address the conflict, it's always someone else's issue. It's always someone else's problem. It was the way I was raised. It was the schools. It's the government. It's my job. It's my ex-spouse. It's my kids. It's this. It's that. It's the law. It's everything. It's always someone else's problem. Listen, and some of you enable the people that you have conflict the most to allow them to wiggle out their way of any accountability, any responsibility. Why? Because you've enabled them to do so. Keep peace. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. We won't go there again. You haven't made peace. You just keep it. Another way is to blame shift. That kind of goes with being a victim. Victim, playing the victim and blame shifting go hand in hand. And if you're in relationships where you cannot address conflict because someone is always pointing the finger back at you, They're masters of manipulating conflict to where the problem is never their own. It's always yours. Have you ever had conflict like that with people? Whenever you walk away, whenever you allow that to happen, you're enabling them. You're not pursuing peace. You're keeping peace. When Peter says pursue peace, it's the hard road. 
And, and this is the example that he's building this on. And it comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus when he was speaking um, at, on the mount. He was giving the, the, the sermon on the mount. And Jesus says, God blesses those who work for peace. Another translation says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they should be called the sons of God. The children of God. Because they will have experienced the peace that I will make between God and themselves. You see, people of peace intentionally seek it. And when it's impossible, they will agree to disagree agreeably and they will release it. We see this in Jesus. Listen. And I'm going to invite Marcos to join me here. Our faith is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus came to this earth to do? To resolve a conflict. A conflict that you and I have with God. You see, when we were in our sin, we were against God. We were in conflict with Him. When Jesus came, He didn't come to this earth to keep peace. Him doing so would have meant Him coming, snapping a finger and saying, everyone is okay now. God accepts you. God forgives you. Everything's peaceful. Just don't act up. If Jesus would have did that, He would have been a peacekeeper. Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came to make peace. So was Jesus apathetic? Jesus was not apathetic. Jesus saw that there was a problem with sin and with man and with God, and he did something about it. Was Jesus denying that there was this problem with sin? He called out sin wherever it was. And did Jesus enable people to continue in their path of denying him? No, he didn't. He would call them out on their sin, and they would turn. But did all of them turn? Not all of them turned. Did the rich young ruler turn? He didn't. His heart was not ready. What did Jesus do? He released him. Jesus released him. But he pursued peace. You see, this, this whole notion of conflict resolution, of why should we seek to resolve conflict with one another? Why should we do that? Why as people of God should we seek to do that? We should do that because that's what Jesus did when he came and he did that for us. He resolved the conflict that we had with God and he made peace for us with God. What do we have to do? Receive that peace. Embrace that peace. Say, God, I believe that you've made peace. That's why you're called sons of God when you're a peacemaker because you've experienced the peace that God has created for you. Psalm 133. Can we stand? I want to close by reading the psalm and we're going to prepare for communion. This is one of my favorite psalms. The psalmist writes, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony and peace. He's saying, man, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. He says, for harmony, peace, right? Relational peace between people. Harmony 
is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Aaron was a high priest and they would anoint Aaron and they would pour this precious oil that smelled beautiful over his head and it would drench his beard, it would drench his robe and he became this sweet-smelling instrument a symbol of God's anointing, of God's power, of God's presence here on earth. The psalmist is saying, man, peace with your brothers and sisters, harmony is like that. He's saying harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. In Israel, there's a mountain called Mount Hermon, and it's green, it's lush, it's full of vegetation. When you look at it, it's breathing and teeming with life. And this mountain sits in the middle of a desert. All around is desert. It's dead. It's dry. And there, there is this mountain with greenery and with life. Why? Because in the mornings, there's this dew. It's not rain. It's dew that's produced. And this dew gives life. He says, when we live in peace, when we live in unity, when there's relational peace with one another, we become like that dew that brings life in the middle of a desert. And the last part says this. This is super powerful. He says, And there the Lord has pronounced His blessing. It's where the Lord sees unity, harmony, togetherness, peace relationally. God looks down at a place like that and He commands His blessing to go there. Think what that means for your house. That when you and your marriage could be a marriage where there's harmony, where there's peace, God looks at a house like that and He says, man, that's the symbol of my anointing. That's a symbol of my power and my presence. That's the dew that brings life. That peace, that harmony is bringing life to that home. And since there's life in that home, the God who sits in heaven, who created the earth, who created the world, who created the universe, looks and says, my blessing, go there. He commands His blessing to go where there's peace and where there's unity and where there's harmony. Now does harmony and peace mean we all agree on everything? No. Does it mean we're all uniform, we all think alike? No. But it means we're of one mind. Remember how Peter started that. Be of one mind. Be about God. His business. Amen.